Reformation Sunday for us is an opportunity to remember that over 500 years ago, God used a collection of imperfect men, saints, not called saints by the Catholic Church, but called saints from a biblical perspective. God used these men to return to the essence of the gospel, to bring about years of, of ongoing reform within the Catholic Church, and to, through a revival led by the Holy Spirit, return to the essence of the gospel. This affects us today. In the back of our church building here, we have the five solas of the Reformation. These five statements are, are the things upon which we can boldly proclaim the foundation of our church. We can boldly say that we know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of our God alone, as proclaimed by Scripture alone. The letter that we're currently studying around, James, found itself in the, in the centerpiece of a number of conversations around the time of the, the Reformation. One of those, I want to mention, involves the authorship of this letter, this general epistle. We saw last week that there are three possible New Testament James who may have been the author. We saw James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We saw James, the brother of Alphaeus. And then we saw James, the brother of Jesus. And I owe you a scripture, so I wanted to settle that before we dive into the text. James 13, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, verse 56. It's not five and six, 56. Thank you to the brothers who helped me find that. And here's what... Here's what the evangelist Matthew tells us. For context, I'll start in verse 53 of Matthew 13. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his, home, his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, it's important to know that the Catholic Church does in fact hold the belief that James, the half-brother, sorry, the stepbrother of Jesus may have been the author of this epistle. Now, notice stepbrother as opposed to half-brother. This is an important distinction because the Catholic Church held that Mary would have been perpetually a virgin. The immaculate conception, she could not possibly have had knowledge of a man even after giving birth to Christ. And so they believe that, that these siblings that are mentioned here in Scripture James and Joseph and Simon and, Je and Judas must have been instead children of Joseph before he married Mary. Don't you think it's interesting that scripture doesn't give us that detail? Don't you suppose that requires some supposition? And one of the issues that we must learn from when we look at the, the Protestant Reformation is inappropriately exalting one who should not be exalted. But before we blame the Catholic Church for exalting Mary, we should know that that happened long before the establishment of the church. Turn with me in your Bibles to 
the book of Luke, verse 27. We have the God-man on earth proclaiming the gospel. And we have a a well-intentioned heckler in the crowd. Verse 27, Luke chapter 11. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The Lord Jesus on the topic of venerating Mary. Not only do we have the authorship of James at, at a bit of the, the focal point of the, of the Protestant Reformation, but we also have well-meaning reformers that got it all wrong. Sinners saved by grace. Martin Luther is the one that we know initiated this, this movement, the nailing up of the 95 Theses. But just like Mary, Luther was a sinner given a appointed purpose by God and was saved by grace. See, Luther calls this book that we're about to study together the epistle of straw. He said that the theology wasn't as sound as that is of the theology that Paul wrote. And in fact, it said that, that Luther offered up his doctoral cap to anybody who could explain to him how James 2.17 that says, faith without works is dead, how that could possibly not be contradictory with Romans 3.28 that says that we're saved through faith apart from the works of the law. But we know God's inerrant word does not contradict itself. So uh, another imperfect man used by God, R.C. Sproul, helps us understand as we come to the book of James how these two things complement one another. R.C. Sproul says, the relationship of faith and good works is one that may be distinguished but never separated. If good works do not follow from our profession of faith, it is a clear indication that we do not possess justifying faith. The reformed formula is we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. It's acknowledging this, that we come together as a church that is reformed, that is being transformed, that stands on the authority of Scripture alone. And on that note, let's stand and look at Scripture together. James chapter 1, you turn with me in your Bibles there, we're going to get our bearings and ask the Lord to direct us as we resume our study of this precious letter. I'll read from verse 1 through the end of verse 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, meet various tri- when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. Let's ask the Lord to direct us this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you humbly this morning and we ask for the, the wisdom and discernment that comes through your Holy Spirit to understand your word, to rightly divide your word, and to rightly apply it. Father God, we ask for your strength in that individually and collectively as a body of believers that has been bought by the blood of your precious son, Jesus. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we, we began with verses 2, 3, and 4 of this precious letter. We saw James write to the brothers, a group of believers, brothers and sisters, part of this 12 tribes in dispersion, this group of people who were called by the name of Christ, but they were in a time of exile and dispersion. And he says to them, count it all joy when you meet unexpectedly trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Another word for perfect we learn is mature. That you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. We learned that the response of joy and rejoicing is one that we are called to do. And we can do that because we have the permanence of standing on God's promises. We have that, that assurance but make no mistake about it, our natural response in trials, our natural man does not respond with joy. In fact, we respond in a lot of other situations. One of the brothers and I spoke last week after the service and I'm saying, you know, sometimes our, our responses to trial is to find a way to numb the pain. Sometimes our response to trial is to be a bit of an emotional turtle and, and go into some sort of depressed mode where we don't function. Sometimes our response to trial is to look for self-preservation and make our trial somebody else's problem. Our natural response is not joy. Two quotes from John Calvin. Curiously, you should know that John Calvin's commentary on the book of James is called James on the Catholic Letters. Rather than referring to it as a general epistle, he refers to it as a Catholic letter. And it's not because the Catholic Church has any extra claim on the book of James. It's because the word Catholic means universal or general. So Calvin, in his commentary, says this with regards to our tendency to respond to trials. Look what he says. It is indeed certain that all the senses of our nature are so formed that every trial produces in us grief and sorrow. And no one of us can so far divest himself of his nature as to not grieve and be sorrowful whenever he feels any evil. But this does not prevent the children of God to rise by the guidance of the Spirit above the sorrow of the flesh. Hence, it is that in the midst of trouble, they cease not to rejoice. It's through the Spirit that our response with a new nature is to respond with joy. A second quote from Calvin says this, Moreover, the minds of men are not so formed by nature that affliction of itself produces patience in them. 
But Peter and Paul regard not so much the nature of men as the providence of God through which it comes, that the faithful learn patience from troubles. For the ungodly are thereby more and more provoked to madness, as the example of Pharaoh proves. That's our natural response. Our natural response is in joy. And if we recap verse 4 as a starting point for our study today, we'll see that there's a conditional statement there. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So if we're steadfast, if we come out of the test successfully, then we'll be lacking in nothing. But guess what? We start off in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Well, wait a minute. We weren't going to be lacking in anything had we passed this trial. But guess what? James is writing to a group of people that apparently weren't excelling at considering all trials joy. Apparently, they'd, they'd missed a few things. Verse 3 says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So the problem here for the people who are receiving James's words of exhortation is not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of properly applying that knowledge, and they come up lacking. And they come up lacking. It's, it's with that that we begin verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, this seems abrupt to me, right? Sometimes James seems just a bit random. How do we connect these thoughts? We went from talking about considering trials joy to now asking God for wisdom. What's the connection? Anybody do their homework this week? Anybody happen upon Matthew chapter 7? What a rich chapter. A sermon manuscript from the one who authored the whole book. We get to read it. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 24. Jesus connects these thoughts of wisdom and trial. Look what he says, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Not only do we find a connection between wisdom, the need for wisdom and enduring the trial in the words of Christ, but we also find it in the life of Job. We know the expression, the trials of Job, right? Turn with me to Job chapter 27, if you would. We're going to look at two passages in the, in the book of Job that help us understand the value, to contemplate the value of wisdom and our need of it in the midst of trial. You see, remember we said trial is an opportunity for righteous obedience? Trial is an opportunity for righteous obedience, but we can only respond in that obedience with wisdom, a wisdom is, that is of God. By the way, James, we described as a synoptic epistle because he walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, and he shares with us thoughts that we see clearly in the teaching of Christ. But James was also influenced by Job. We know that because in 
Job chapter 4, there's a mention of it. He calls to mind the steadfastness of Job under trial. As he writes to a group of, of Jewish Christians, all of them would have known of Job. So this isn't conjecture that I bring this passage to you, but look at it. Job chapter 27, verses 2 through 5, we see Job in the middle of his trial, clinging to obedience in God. Look what he says. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right, Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I will hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. This is a man who's in the middle of trial, in the middle of a testing of his faith. And you'll notice in your Bibles, if you have an ESV Bible, that chapter 28 has a caption and it says, Job continues, right? So in the text, there's no break between chapter 27 and chapter 28. This is Job's conversation with God. And, and look what Job begins with. He be, begins with a, a statement about where is wisdom found? For some of the uh, younger people in the congregation today, you might be familiar with a game called Minecraft, okay? So use your imagination just a bit as we hear Job in beautiful poetic language describe the human quest for elusive wisdom, a wisdom that is of God. We'll read a few of the verses of this chapter together, not all of it, but look at the beauty of God's word. Job says, Surely there is a mine for silver, and there is a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit. The ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives, and they are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has the dust of gold. Down to verse 9. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. Verse 11 describes panning for gold. Look at that. He dams up streams so that they do not trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. Verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Ahead to verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living, and it is concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows the place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning and thunder. Then he saw it, and he declared it, and he established it, and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. 
underline that in your text because this is critical for us to understand what is wisdom. Wisdom was elusive to man. You could mine for it deep under the mountains. You could pan for gold. You could look for the treasure. And as Sean shared from Proverbs, this treasure declared by God, precious. So verse 28 of Job 28, worth memorizing. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For those of you who are in uh, Sunday school this morning, we're getting a, an awesome recap of the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Praise God for the things that we learned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Look what Paul says when he starts to talk about how he is sharing this hidden treasure of wisdom. Look what he says. Yet among the mature those who are perfect and complete, right? Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. It's this wisdom that we need in the midst of trials. It's this wisdom that we need to come to the Lord and ask him for. Going back to James chapter 1, we made it through one, one stanza there, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, we see that those who are the recipients of James' letter, they clearly did lack wisdom. So where then should they find it? Well, let him ask God. The simple formula is there. Wisdom given by God. More on that in a minute, but let's look at the perfect example that, again, the Jewish readers of James would have had to, in mind as they would have approached this topic of wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3. The well-known sage, the wise Solomon. And look at the posture of Solomon's heart as he, in fact, asks God for wisdom. Solomon takes over for his father, David. And he sees the great and many people of Israel. He says, how am I going to do this? I'm in the midst of a trial. And, and Solomon would have known from experience that if he wasn't in trial at the moment, that there would be trials coming, right? When he least expected it. And so Solomon has this opportunity to talk to God Almighty and to make a petition What a precious text. Verse 6 of 1 Kings chapter 3, we'll start there. Verse 5, rather. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, 
You have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am but a little child, and I do not know how to go out or come in. You see, that's the position with which we must come to the Lord asking for wisdom. If we think we have the ability to to outsmart our trials or to come up with a a way to alleviate some of the, the pain of our trials, we've got it all wrong. And our lack of wisdom is evident. Because when that storm comes, our foundation will be revealed. So, James says, ask God with humility. Look what, look what Solomon's conversation continues to look like with God. So he says, I'm just a child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. The basics. In verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of people who you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? We saw that this morning too with the book of Exodus and Moses. How do I judge the affairs of all of these different people? How do I lead these people? He asks specifically, Solomon asks here, how do I discern between good and evil? Two different responses to trial. Remember trial, an opportunity for righteous obedience. Which outcome? So Solomon asks for this wisdom. And in verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days." And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. God gave him that wisdom and discernment and he added to him all those other things. Does that sound like anything we might have read this week? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It's that that righteous response, that wisdom played out that brings attention to the hope that lies within us. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. This brings me to the second point that I want to call out in the text that we're looking at together in James today. And that is some deep theology. Some deep theology of who God is. Remember we said that Luther and others thought James was a little bit light on theology. But look, in the simple statement it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. For the linguists out there, the way this is written is in the imperfect. So it's perfect in that it's imperfect. By imperfect, it means it's an action that keeps on going. So when it says, God who gives generously, it's it's an act of continually giving. Every time we ask. That's why we come before the throne of grace boldly. And without reproach means without criticism. You ever get tired of 
of, of somebody asking you for something. Maybe your kids keep asking for the same thing over and over again. Do you ever get tired of that, that person that you, you're uh, working with and they're constantly asking for, for time off and you got to cover for them? Right? Do you ever get one of those situations where the, the request seems like it's over and over again? But guess what? God does not tire. His character is on display in what James says here. What James says here, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, without criticism, because that is his nature. We see that later on in the same chapter, James chapter 1, verse 17. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Those gifts come down from the Father. We also might have noticed that in our reading this week. Go with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're just going to skim read this, but I want you to see the nature of our God on display. Verse 6, sorry, verse 4 of Matthew chapter 6, we see that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's God giving. We see in Matthew 6, verse 8, it says, Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the nature of our God on display, a God who gives. Then we, we go to the next passage where it talks about worry, and we see that, that God gives the birds and the flowers of the field. Look at verse 30 of Matthew 6. For if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith? God's providence, God's giving. And of course, the obvious answer to the nature of our God in giving is, is seen in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or to which of you says, if your, his son asks him for bread, Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's our nature of God on display. And the, the heart of the gospel, we look at Reformation Sunday and coming back to the essence of it, does it get any more essential than John 3.16? Does it get any more unbelievable and miraculous and amazing than God's character on display in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians, that son that he gave, let's go back to 1 Corinthians again, that son that he gave became wisdom for us. He became redemption for us. the heart of the gospel, the God who gives. We look at verse 30 and it says, because of him, you who are in Christ, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's gift 
through Christ. He became all of those things for us. And you know what's really interesting? God gives these gifts when we fail to ask him. In the case of wisdom, James says, if anyone's lacking wisdom, let him ask. But you know what? We need God's giving even to recognize what we've been given. Skip ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Check this out, verse 13. This is amazing, the depths of, of the mystery. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You see, we need the gift of wisdom from God even to identify what it is that we've been given. Some of you might remember a Tom Hanks movie from a few years back, agonizingly long, but there's a few things you can redeem from the movie Castaway. And if you remember, there was a FedEx commercial that came out after that movie did, where it shows that Tom Hanks opens the package and he realizes that the entire time he's been stuck on a desert island, he's had a satellite phone and a bunch of seeds to grow plants. Right? How much are, are we like that? We fail to realize what God has put at our disposition the entire time. That wisdom, there is no reason we ought to be lacking that. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives freely. Back to James 1. We connect the trial with a need for wisdom so that we can live out obedience in the midst of the trial. And the problem is, in our lack of wisdom, we'll make decisions with erroneous criteria. And in that, we'll fail to be obedient. Look what we see here. So, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Those are scathing words. Who wants to be called unstable? Who wants to be called double-minded? David used the word double-minded in Psalm 119, verse 113. He says, I hate the double-minded. They spurn the law of the Lord. A bit ironic because David himself showed himself to be double-minded on more than just a couple of occasions, right? So when we talk about double-minded, guess who we're talking about? Us. Talking about us. Mark used the expression this morning, preaching to the choir. You know why we preach to the choir? Because the choir needs to hear it again. <laughs> and again. And again. See, this wisdom is given to us by God. It wasn't just taken in, in, from hidden places and, and declared through Paul, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2 ends with saying, but we have the mind of Christ. We have all of this available to us. We have all of this wisdom to us in the midst of trial so that we might respond, but we don't. And therein lies the problem. That's why we're in the book of James. One of our sisters here told me that she, her, uh, her previous place of congregation just finished up the book of James and so she's starting it again. 
Praise God for that. We preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again because we are needful of it. Verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This imagery, of course, brings to mind a double-minded sinner saved by grace that we encounter in scripture. Peter. Go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. We've got Peter, who has spent at this point a considerable amount of time with the God-man, with wisdom and flesh. He's had the opportunity to hear the word of God and the opportunity to, to consider responding with that knowledge. Starting at verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the last and the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out to him in fear. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. The waves beating against the boat. It was tossed to and fro. Like you couldn't really even tell which way the wind was going to take them. It did a little of all of those things. One of the commentaries that I read by Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes spent some of his formative years growing up here in Southern California. And he describes taking a boat out to Catalina Island. I've never been there, but I understand that there are sometimes currents to take you one way and breeze that takes you the other way. And what ends up happening is a lot of heaving up and down. The ship's not going anywhere. And you end up with a bunch of people who are paralyzed by fear, throwing up into the water. And the Christian life ought not be like that. But James tells us that when we're overcome looking at the waves and when we're overcome looking at the, the impacts of the wind, we go nowhere. That's what he means by double-minded. One preacher I listened to said, it's like trying to ride two horses at one time, right? You've got on one hand a fear of the Lord. That's wisdom, Job 28, 28. On the other hand, you've got fear of the circumstance, which one, fear, which one brings more fear to you? Which one ought to bring more fear to us, right? It's our fear of the Lord. And that second definition from Job 28, 28 is, turn away from evil. But how hard is that when our nature makes us bent towards that very evil that we know we ought to walk away from? So the, the implications here in the middle of trial is, are we more afraid of our trial and our situation than we are of our holy God? Are we more bent towards doing what we desire, what seems like the right solution to our trial? Or are we leaning into God? Matthew 14, 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. The voice of Christ in the midst of the trial. 
So our double-minded friend in verse 28 starts to get the picture. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. See that response? See that response? The, the size of the trial diminished for just a moment in the reality of the presence of Christ who called him. But then like we do, Peter lost his focus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Any chance James knew of this little narrative when he wrote this letter? <laughs> I think he did. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That's why we have to be anchored up. That's why we have to be anchored in Christ. Because if we start looking at the waves around us, our eyes are off of Christ. And the fact that we're double-minded, we're going to end up on a ship that's going nowhere. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, the, the notion of double-minded, two souls, two different perspectives, and two different opposing directions. You can't do both at the same time. And James says this on a number of different occasions. In fact, the expression double-minded comes up again later on in the book of James. If you would turn with me to James chapter 4. We have a passage again directed to the same group of believers, right? These double-minded people are not outside of the faith. They're the ones inside the faith. Those who are outside the faith are only single-minded. That is, do what the flesh says. For the Christian, we have this particular dilemma that Christ lives in us. We have the mind of Christ, and yet we fail to walk in obedience. James 4.8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Just like Peter. Jesus, I need to get to you. And Jesus says, come. Close that gap. Draw near to God in the midst of trials and a time of intimacy and prayer. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It occurs to me as a, as a practical example, we look at what wisdom would seem to be in scripture and we see that first of all, wisdom begins with this understanding of what it is that God wants to communicate to us. It begins with, with what could be information. We talk about sound doctrine at Pacific Hope Church. We talk about knowing all of these, these essential doctrines of the church. 
like it says in James 1. For you know that the, tri- the trials are for the testing of your faith. You know these things, church. But then comes the next step, and that is taking that information and applying it to the specific situation that you're going through. The Lord's beginning to put some things on, on my heart and, and prayerfully others of you would consider what it is to be capable of doing biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is, is allowing the word of God to speak to situations in which people need to respond with obedience. But you know, we do biblical counseling amongst ourselves. We do biblical counseling internally to ourselves. And you know, our problem isn't that we don't know what scripture says. The problem is we don't want to do it. I didn't hear a single amen. I don't know what that means. <laughs> the problem is we don't want to do it. And so God then allows us to go from this doctrinal knowledge, this thing that we understand, to then discerning the particulars of the situation and then making the choice to do it. Some of us have uh, smartphones. My smartphone pieces together that I own it, that it is Sunday, and that it's about time for me to be going to church. And it actually gives me directions to Pacific Hope Church on Sunday mornings before I even go here. I don't know if anybody else's phone does that, but it's a really remarkable and simple way to understand how it is that wisdom works, right? We've been given the information, we've been given the direction, but you know what? Nobody makes us get in the car and go. That last piece of practical obedience is what we need to ask God for. God, I know what the right thing to do is. Your scripture has made it perfectly crystal clear. In this situation, I ought to speak. Psalm chapter 37, 20 and 21, right? The the righteous speaks wisdom. Sometimes that practical discernment says, I know that I ought not speak, right? That trial that you're going through might be one where you know you ought to forgive. I don't want to forgive. That trial might be one where we know we need to trust God wholeheartedly, but we still got to come up with our own contingency plan. Do we do that? We do. Here's a great simple explanation of what it looks like when the Christian, the double-minded Christian, loses sight of that last and critical step, and that is obedience. Also in James chapter 4, We have a simple statement. Verse 17, it says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? It is sin. There it is. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask for it. And now that you've been given this wisdom, the last and final step out of that is obedience. Step out in that faith without doubting. I feel like we picked on Peter just a little bit this morning. We have, we see that he's double-minded in in many of his responses. But yet we know that God gave Peter chance after chance to step up to the plate. And that same Peter becomes the rock upon which Christ says, I will establish my church. That ought to give us some hope, brothers and sisters, because just like trials come one after another, so do opportunities for obedience. And so do his mercies. I want to look at 
book of Matthew yet again. We get to spend some precious time in the Gospels together as we, as we go through this. Chapter 24, if I got my notes right. God's word is unfallible. My notes sometimes leave a little bit to be desired. But his grace is sufficient. We have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's finished doing dinner with his beloved disciples. And they go off for a solemn evening of prayer. And we, we see that Jesus asked his disciples to keep watch and pray with him. And this is hard. We got Peter and we've got his, uh, his drowsy, double-minded heart. You see, being able to discern and obey are different steps. Jesus in this, in this account says on two separate occasions, God, if it's, if it's your will, can this cup pass by me? And he asks him again. And he says, Father, if it cannot, be, if it cannot pass, your will be done. Jesus speaks to Peter in the middle of all that, and he says, so could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. See, there's our problem. We've got the spirit on one hand, and we've got the flesh on the other. That's our, that's our experience as human beings. We've got the fear of the Lord, and the fear of our situation. But here we have the God-man speaking to God the Father. And in verse 42 of Matthew 26, he says, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. And we know from what we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ was obedient. He had all the knowledge of God's plan. Why? Because he was with God. He was God in eternity past. He knew what this plan had to be. And he discerned that his hour was at hand. He knew what the unfolding hours would unfold. The pain and the agony of obedient submission to death, even death on a cross. Where you and I lack the wisdom, where we forget the permanence of God's promises and flounder, Christ obeyed. And in that, he became righteousness. He became wisdom. He became redemption. He became salvation for us. Will we continue in our double-mindedness until we meet him face to face? Yes, we will. But Christ paid the price for that in his obedience taking to the cross, our sins, our inability to respond to trials. 
And, you know, as we continue to move through the study of James, what we'll have to look at next week is, is the fact that not only do we sometimes flounder in the trials, but we often misplace our trust in the middle of those things. We'll talk about the, the rich man putting his trust in his riches. And we'll ultimately need to be reminded again and again of the object of our trust. Let's go back to James chapter 1. I conclude with this because this is something that I, I really have been impressed upon as I look at the perfectness of, of God's word. You see, this passage, chapter 1, verses 2 through 19 or so, look like a bunch of just different disconnected ideas and they're hard. They require us to look at them with care. But we see that we're to count it all joy, brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds. And we talked about that word various, right? Sometimes lots of trials at once, changes in how we experience that trial, the different waves of grief. But guess what? This whole chapter is built on top of this precious promise. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1 again. Verse 16 for context. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Isn't that amazing how James does that play with words? Our trials, constantly changing. Our, tr our trials, experienced in different ways with different responses. But our God, unchanging. We have Christ's example, Christ in us. Let's... Uh, pray and ask the Lord to, to give us not only an understanding of his word, but also the ability to apply it to our lives in obedience this week. That we would not be double-minded, that we would put our, our full confidence acting out in faith in what we know Christ is indicating that we ought to do. Father God, we come before you this morning and we, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that it doesn't contradict itself in any way, but yet it complements itself. It is all. Your written word carried forth through imperfect vessels, but given to us so that we might understand that you are holy, that you are perfect, that you are unchanging, and that you lived out a practical obedience in the, in the midst of the greatest trial humanity would ever know. You surrendered your life obediently for the price of saving sinners to buy us and to offer us a chance for obedient living in light of your gospel. We thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to draw near to your word. May it transform us so that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers only. Give us gospel power to, to make that decision and to take action on what we know to be right and to be true so that we would be known as your people. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.